and welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about exhibition design and curation. Today on the show, I am joined by the architecture curator, educator, and multidisciplinary designer, Ashley Mendelson. From 2015 to 2020, Ashley worked at the Guggenheim Museum, where she was an exhibition designer and then the assistant curator of architecture and digital initiatives, working on a range of projects, including the Helsinki Competition and Countryside the Future. In this episode, Ashley and I talk about studying architecture and her move into exhibition design. We talk about her time in the art design and public domain program at the Harvard GSD and kind of what she learned in that program and how that uh, shaped much of her thinking and how she started the 40 Kirkland Gallery while she was a student there. We also talk about her time at the Guggenheim and what it means to be a curator in a big institution like that and kind of all the different parts of the process that the curator is involved in. But something that I really admire about Ashley is this passion she has for making architecture interesting and accessible for people outside of the profession. You'll hear her talk about teaching architecture to high school students in this episode or giving building tours while she was at the Guggenheim and why it's so important to her to demystify these subjects and make them understandable to as wide an audience as possible. I know for me, it was really inspiring to hear her talk about these things. And I hope you find this conversation as... um, as uplifting as I did. Don't forget that Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listener support. If you enjoy this show and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. These memberships truly help keep the show going. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that as sort of the director's commentary for the show includes reflections on the episodes and behind the scenes content, previews of upcoming episodes, and all sorts of other bonus content and interviews. If you want to help the show and see it continue, I hope you consider becoming a member. For all the details and to sign up, you can visit scratchingthesurface.fm slash members. Thanks again for listening. And here is my conversation with Ashley Mendelson. conversation by referring to another conversation that I read of yours yeah um in in preparing for this there's a really good interview with you on on Madam Architect which I know is a site you're also involved with a little bit um but you talked about in that very briefly at the beginning of that interview about studying architecture and having an interest in architecture from a very early age uh but then working in architecture studios and kind of quickly realizing that maybe you weren't going to be somebody who was designing buildings and that your interests didn't seem to match the interests of the studio or the questions you were asking weren't uh, the questions that, that those studios were, were necessarily asking, not, you know, not saying anything bad about, about those places, but just that your interests seemed different. And I read that and completely related to that. That was like a hundred percent my own experience as a graphic designer working in in graphic design studios and i'm wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit and and kind of maybe connect that to even your your undergrad education in architecture was that i don't know was that shocking to you to to like go through studying architecture and then to work and think huh maybe this isn't for me and kind of how did you articulate and work through that that kind of early part of your career? I mean, it's interesting because actually, so I graduated in 2009 
And I think that many people mm-hmm. who graduated around that time, mm-hmm. it was a shock, especially when you're graduating from a school like Cornell, where typically people have been recruited, you know, in years mm-hmm. above us. And suddenly the firm that I had interned at um, most recently was laying off, you know, half of the office. And so I ended up getting an unpaid internship at the Guggenheim which was my first um, step into the museum world in exhibition design. And I actually found many aspects of exhibition design really in line with um, what working in school had felt like. There's a kind Mm -hmm. of instant gratification to some level just because of the quick turnaround, but also you're really talking about a human scale moving through in such a direct way. So I, I was really excited by that. Um, and one of the shows I worked on was a Chamberlain retrospective, um, which, and the curator was talking about, you know, there are X number of works in the show, but these are the couple that are, you know, the most significant in his career, you know, keep that in mind when you're doing the design. And it just started making me really think like, oh, wow, exhibition design can be so didactic. You know, it's providing this clear function where it's a, a pedestal or a partition wall or whatever in, in a really complex building. But it's also this other layer of things. So I was very excited about that. And that's part of the reason why I went back to grad school. I just kind of wanted to dig deeper because I felt like I didn't have the tools or didn't know how to do that work. Um, But then in grad school, I think I more and more kind of recognized that working explicitly as an architect wasn't for me um, in doing my thesis project when there was just kind of pressure or expectation to to design either a physical installation or the design for something physical. And I kind of recognized with my project that you know, I had no business doing that, you know, I just didn't know enough about the site. Um, And so I think that, yeah, that has really influenced me and made me think differently that just, you know, we don't always need to design. That's not always the right, the right choice in every situation. I, I guess maybe the reason I'm asking that question is I think it was, and I'm not asking you to kind of psychoanalyze yourself or anything like that, but when I think back on my own career, I, I I see a resistance to accepting that maybe being a graphic designer in the traditional sense wasn't for me after, you know, wanting to be a graphic designer as a kid, studying graphic design, loving it in school, and then getting into kind of the professional world and feeling this kind of disconnect. Um, and I've since kind of come back into the world and figured out you know, that my place is maybe not as a, as a graphic designer in the traditional sense. I'm just curious if, if you had that also, or if, if kind of interning at the Guggenheim early and working in exhibition design, that kind of scratched that itch that designing a building would, would have, would have had. Oh, no, I definitely had the same experience as you. Mm -hmm. I think it was just, you know, because of when I initially graduated from undergrad, it all kind of became delayed. But when I was at the GSD, you know, some of the faculty around you and there's just such energy and so many things happening. I felt, you know, really embedded in the field again. And I actually did a a more traditional 
internship at Allied Works. And I was like, maybe I will <laughs> be an architect, um, which my parents were crossing their fingers. They're like, this is what studied and have been talking about your whole life. Um, right. but then after graduating, I, I was seeking out positions that could be more research oriented. Mm. So I kind of was trying to talk to mentors and people. And I was like, what's a firm that's designing libraries or cultural institutions and maybe they need someone in their office who's just doing some of that initial work to determine why a library in Chicago would be different than one in Lebanon mm-hmm, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and it was just really frustrating to find that in most firms or I don't know I, I just couldn't find any kind of position remotely like that and had one interview somewhere where <laughs> I won't say what firm it was but <laughs> they basically said well the client's not going to pay for that work so it's not going right. to happen right and that was so disappointing and like disillusioning um so I actually returned to the Guggenheim only because there was um an opening in exhibition design I had kind of through the process of grad school felt that I didn't want to pursue exhibition design, that I was more engaged Mm. in kind of, I don't know, these other topics about cultural history of sites and and how that could affect the design world and and exhibition design suddenly felt kind of very small comparatively. Um, But I went back to the Guggenheim because I just had trouble finding, finding the right path after grad school. That's the problem with these types of careers that we're interested in is that, you know, they're few and far between. And in many ways, you have to kind of invent them in yeah. some in some ways. But let's I mean, I don't want to I don't want to just kind of go through your whole background step by step. But I do want to talk about Harvard. Yeah. Uh, for a second, because that does seem like a big turning point in your own thinking about your own work. And I'm it's interesting to me that the the program that you went to at Harvard was the is it art in the public domain or art and architecture in the public domain art design in the public domain art design in the public domain. (laughs) yeah yeah uh and I've talked to a couple people on the show who have gone through that program but can you talk a little bit about what I mean you did you didn't go to study you didn't go to the architecture program I guess is is the question what was it about this art and design in the public domain that seemed like a better fit for your interest in your goals at the time I mean, part of the appeal of all of the master in design studies programs was, you know, that it's, it's full of professionals. You know, most people in those programs already had professional architecture degrees, but then they, mm-hmm. they kind of had a more uh, concentrated interest. But at the same time, those programs were very flexible. And that program has shifted a lot in the last few years. But when I did it, I believe I had two required classes and I didn't take either of them (laughs) um which is so unlike me if you knew me at all they weren't that required well I mean everyone else took them but I you know went to Sanford Quinter at the time and I was just like oh there's this chorus in the divinity school at the same time and I really want to take it and he was basically looked at me and said, don't disappoint me. (laughs) Find the form. Um, And so, you know, especially after doing a BRC at Cornell, where, of course, there was some space for electives. um, That's such a, you know, structured program. So I was really excited by the bigger Harvard course catalog and how I could 
I mean, initially I applied kind of with that like didactic exhibition design. I think mm-hmm. that's what my application essay was about. Um, but I took some anthropology courses that really affected me and and then this one professor in the divinity school so it's a non-denominational divinity school um mm-hmm. and there's this professor michael jackson who is the first person to tell you that he was michael jackson first <laughs> um i took two different classes with him that were essentially about ritual and storytelling um mm. and they were so incredible i mean there were so many incredible things about the way he taught that course, he said that he was in the divinity school because he felt that within the anthropology program, which I don't know if this is offensive to them, but, but that there was a focus on um, discussing how people are different. Um, And he, Mm. you know, kind of like defining these like different cultures and different worldviews. And he was really focused personally on how humans share and how like, inherently similar we all are um and so then to teach a course in a non-denominational school on the very first day he said you can never assume that anyone in the room understands anything you're saying Mm. um which was I think really the only reason why I was able to drop in as someone who completely had a different background hadn't done any of the core anthropology readings that some people had done um because we all just really had to break it down and, and, and leave the jargon behind. So I think those, those courses really, really affected me um, in many ways. And were those, did, were you seeing that effect immediately? I mean, I imagine you were also taking design classes and kind of more traditional uh, classes in the GSD. Were you seeing connections between, you know, that class or these kind of other anthropology classes affecting how you were approaching your design classes? For sure. I also, at the same time, took, um, so a couple of people from IDEO Boston taught a design course at the GSD. And I was Mm. taking that course and at the same time taking some courses um, in the engineering school that were also related to design thinking. Um, There's this woman, Beth Altringer, who had done her PhD on IDEO. And so, so yeah, I was taking courses in a bunch of different schools that were all interdisciplinary and somehow I felt like everyone was trying to have the same conversation, but coming at it from really different points of view. So my strategy with such a short program was to try to develop my thesis really early and just talk about it in all of these very different contexts with super different people and see how that affected the project. And it definitely had very early and quick effects going from saying, you know, I'm going to travel to this site in Cape Town and probably just make an art installation because I am a designer and (laughs) it will, whatever, make an impact um, to, to kind of really recognizing that, that there was no point of that at all. Um, That's so fun. I mean, we're so similar. I was the same way in grad school where I took, I took a bunch of, um, classes in the kind of critical theory program and I I also developed my thesis very early and I would just like try to turn every project or every paper writing in in like that I had to write in my writing class or my philosophy class would just be about my thesis just so I could get those people outside of the design program uh 
to hear what they thought about it and if it if it made sense. And so it's it's so weird to hear how similar your strategy uh, your well, strategy was. I I think that that's the best way to make use of school. So great strategy that you used to. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And honestly, I see a lot of. I see how that's affected how I've worked professionally in many very specific ways. I think um, not to kind of push the conversation forward, but um, when you work at a really big institution, you're communicating ideas to, to really broad general audiences. Um, And so having just even through kind of talking through my thesis with, with people who weren't typically, within design circles, I felt like I had developed some vocabulary, but at least some like sensitivity to, to think about how to, how to talk about those ideas, but also to kind of really recognize how many circular conversations in the design world were maybe not saying anything at all. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I want to, I want to come back to that for a second, but I want to just follow, follow this thread of of grad school just one more question or potentially one more question it might it might go a little longer but i i'm interested in what you said earlier about how you applied uh kind of very didactically thinking about exhibition design but then when you graduated your interests were much broader or that maybe that wasn't necessarily the thing that you wanted to do after you've you finished uh at harvard and from the outside and kind of looking at your career and, and looking at, at uh, you know, researching kind of what, what you were doing while you were in school, it seems like the um, 40 Kirkland Gallery that you started mm-hmm. um, seemed like a big turning point for you. And I don't mean to put too much kind yeah, of importance absolutely. on it, but that seemed, that seemed like possibly your first experience curating in addition to designing. And that also seemed, now hearing you talk about these divinity classes, it seems like that was kind of filtering into that work. Can you talk a little bit about, about kind of what that was and how that kind of maybe changed what you thought you were going to do post-grad school? Definitely. And I think that the definition of curating is so many things. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I was just like single-handedly running that gallery. So it was a lot of things. It was, you know, how am I communicating it to the student body and, and marketing and, but also kind of curating, you know, a series of programs. And I really quickly saw that the value of that space was creating a space within the GSD where students could have conversations with each other that weren't driven by a specific course that they were taking. Um, Or, or, and they also weren't, I don't, there's this thing called beer and dogs, which was just like hot dogs and beer on Friday, which was really cool. Actually kind of incredible and worthwhile. But I was like, what's, what's this other space um, where we can talk and meet? Um, And that, yeah, so I, I think that curating is so many things, but what I felt like I was really curating was a community and trying mm. to craft how, you know, what would make it feel like that space was effective. Ultimately, I realized, um, so the GSD, um, Gund Hall, the kind of main space uh, building was already too small for the student body. So the school mm. acquired a few houses 
um, just in the area, um, including several on Kirkland Street, which is just adjacent. Um, and the reason why I initially, I think they now call the gallery just the Kirkland Gallery, but I called it the 40 Kirkland Gallery because I knew I needed the address just to get people to figure right. out where it was. Um, but anyway, so there's just kind of an extra room that had been mostly used for storage, but also really only students who had classes in there would ever go. Um, and there was felt such a separation between MDES students and and the MARC students, which is so strange because we're all within the same world. You know, we just weren't right. in the same building. So, so yeah, it was really exciting. And I think like on the one hand, it was this community, but it was also like, what if you had a space where you could test an idea, you know, right. in a big scale, like space is just such an incredible commodity. So I like very carefully tried to figure out who the thesis student was each semester that should have the gallery space um, so that they could like really bring their project to fruition. And I don't know, I, the gallery really did impact me in a major way. So you were totally right in saying that, you know, there were multiple moments, especially in my first year of school, where I thought, this is the single most fulfilling thing that I'm doing. Like, what does this mean about yeah. what I want to do with my life afterwards? Was I don't mean to put definitions around it or, yeah. you know, or label it in any way, but did you see curator or curation? Did that, like, was that a term that felt right for what you were doing or that you're like, maybe this move away from, I don't mean to say that like, you're not a designer now, but um, more towards the curatorial side, did that, um, did that kind of like, I don't know, make sense to you at that time? Did that seem like, oh, this is what I'm doing now. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm curating. I don't know. I mean, I think that that word and that practice is, is so different <laughs> depending yeah. on the context. Um, and so I definitely, you know, in many contexts have described that role at the gallery as curating um, because, you know, whatever for resume purposes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I felt more just as the director of the gallery and that that encompassed so many other, other things. Um I really, I mean, I, I'd selected who would work in the space and I, I really <laughs> at many times had to super solicit that because there wasn't any funding, <laughs> right. uh, but I took the lightest, lightest possible hand in the actual exhibitions themselves. Um, I wasn't interested in my, in my voice being a part of the exhibitions. It was more about um, kind of selecting the types of conversations that would be there. But, you know, in the way that curating, I think, is understood by most people, it's not like I was, you know, writing wall text for those shows. I, I, it was more about, you know, creating the platform and then deciding who, who could be within that platform. I mean, maybe we can connect this then to the, to the Guggenheim a little bit also, um, because after you you finished at Harvard, you went back to the Guggenheim first as a exhibition designer, right? Right. So, so I mean, can you, I, I guess what I'm interested in is where those two sides start to maybe come together or overlap a little bit of this kind of the, the, the actual kind of physical exhibition design with the kind of curatorial administration, um, 
kind of soliciting work because it's interesting. I'm having trouble kind of articulating this, this question, but hearing you talk about 40 Kirkland and that you didn't want to put your voice into it, which seems like an exhibition design question also. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it sounds like that you, you didn't think about that necessarily as an exhibition design project as much. And I'm, I'm kind of, I guess I'm just interested in where those come together. Um, where does the exhibition design hat, where, when, where do you take that off in the curatorial hat? Come on, are both of them on all the time? Like, how do you kind of think about that both there, but also in the work that you've done since? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that when you have an architecture and design background, you ultimately never take an exhibition design hat off. You're always mm-hmm. thinking about how information is displayed. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I was... I felt that being in curatorial at the Guggenheim because I had an exhibition design background was always, always to my benefit, not only because I, you know, deeply understood what was possible in that building, but also I had a very close relationship with the team because they were my team, you know, for so long. Um, And I think sometimes those tensions are very complicated um, and, and there's just, I think sometimes curatorial maybe feels that exhibition design is only practical and doesn't recognize mm-hmm. um, so many of the other ways that exhibition design shapes um, the extent to which people are internalizing any of the information on display. Um, right. Yeah. So I, I definitely always, always feel the exhibition design side, but when I went to the GSD and through that process, I felt that I no longer wanted to pursue exhibition design. Um, I think specifically at a large scale institution, because it can be so siloed and it can be so kind of regulated to just one thing. Um, and so really I went back to the Guggenheim, obviously I was, you know, beyond grateful for the opportunity. And I really love working with that team, but I, I took a job in exhibition design again, because there was an opening and, you know, (laughs) I was looking for work. Um, and there was a very kind of specific transition into curatorial, um, which was very lucky, but, um, right. Can you talk about that? That's, that was exactly what my next question was going to be. Totally. So, um, they were, they had posted for, a curator of architecture. I think that the original posting was for architecture and urban initiatives. Um, and there hadn't been an architecture curator in, in some time, a couple, a couple of years. Um, so they posted for that right when I was graduating and I applied, (laughs) even though I, whatever was not qualified, you know, right out of school. Um, and then when I was working in exhibition design, they were doing that search. And so I was very aware of it and kind of keeping tabs and, you know, decided that whoever got the job, I would pitch myself to them immediately <laughs> um, and say, you need help. <laughs> you are going to be a curatorial assistant. And remarkably, it it actually completely worked out that way, which is, you know, just a matter of timing. Um, but uh so Troy Conrad Tyrion was hired um, in October of 2014, and he was kind of instantly given two really major projects and I think recognized the in- institutional knowledge that I had. Um, and so one of the first projects he was working on is the Helsinki competition. So he kind of came on too late 
in the competition to actually affect, you know, the process of the competition itself or who was winning, but was tasked with putting on an exhibition in Helsinki that would introduce the six final architecture entries to the community of Helsinki, because really there needed to be local buy-in for that to happen. And, you know, now we know it didn't happen (laughs) because the local buy-in didn't work out. But, but anyway, um, so that exhibition was happening. So when I first approached him, I think in his first week, he was kind of like, (laughs) this exhibition has to be up in April, which is, you know, in museum world, that's a wildly short timeline. So I was the exhibition designer for that show but then ultimately co-curated it with him as well, which is just the rarest opportunity to do both at a large-scale institution. So I was working on drafting all of the text and selecting images um, and also kind of fully designed all of the exhibition design elements too. And then after that show went up, I transitioned completely to curatorial. Uh, that's so that's so interesting i mean i so you're you you were the uh up until recently you were the assistant curator of architecture and digital initiatives was 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 your title and i think this is actually a really nice way to kind of talk about like the actual work of the curator and like everything that that entails because i think I was going to say for many people, but I'm speaking for myself. I, I, it's easy for me to think of the curator as kind of the glamorous flying around the world, visiting artists, you know, visiting sites, you know, the Hans Ulrich Obrist type, you know, it's just kind of always on the move. Uh, and A, that's just not always what a curator does. And I think about, and B, I, I think about, um, I had James Voorhees on the show mm-hmm. uh, about a year ago, and he, define curating to me and I think about this all the time I think this this um this framework that he he talked about is so right as uh curation is a mix of mediation caretaking and administration and my first question is does that sound uh do do you agree with that does that sound right to you um and then my second question is if you could kind of talk about what that means to be a curator at a large institution like the Guggenheim, um, where you are often the person who is kind of assisting somebody else who is making a lot of those big decisions. Yeah, I, I would agree with that overall, but I think the piece that's missing is, um, I mean, there's education, <laughs> which is a <clears throat> part of it, but I think also that right. that really speaks to um how I've always approached um, curatorial and I think everything that I do um, through this uh, biography <laughs> that I've been laying out, <laughs> the thing that I have left out is that I have been teaching for my whole career. Yeah. Uh, first year at Cornell, I was teaching at the GSD. Um, I'm still teaching now. And and so I always really see those as parallel processes and, 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 and that really affects curatorial. But so there's the kind of maybe obvious educational side of curatorial, which is thinking about external audiences, but it's also so much of the internal audiences. So mm-hmm. you're working with, you know, directly with an artist or an architect and you are just 
within a space with them, you're speaking in a very specific way. Um, and then you need to think about how that content is translated um, to the legal department so they can actually craft a contract that mm. will, uh, you know, facilitate the ambiguity of the project, um, the uh, fundraising team so that they can fund. And that's a huge part of architecture curatorial um, because there aren't kind of galleries um, that are funding things. So you, you know, you're working through ideas and you the whole time are thinking, (laughs) how do I also explain this in a way that a funder is going to want to give money for it? Um, Mm. And then, and then, you know, you're also kind of translating for the education team within the institution, the the more kind of public facing teams, communication, visitor experience. So I felt that so much of my time was was kind of serving as this kind of main point of contact with all of these different teams across the institution and conveying the exact same idea, but but understanding that they all had very different needs and very different audiences. Did you see that work as, uh, I don't know how to phrase this, as like intellectual or as, as creative maybe? I mean, I guess, I guess the, the, the question that I'm asking is I'm something I think about a lot and that I'm very interested in is the intersection or balance between kind of administration and like scholarship, mm-hmm. basically. And and the reason I'm interested in that just uh, selfishly is because personally, I think I'm good at both of those, but not when I have to do both of them together. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm always constantly trying to figure out, like, how do I make space to think and to write and to, to you know, to, to do the research when I also have to do all of this kind of more administrative work responding to emails making sure everyone knows what they're supposed to be doing etc etc and it sounds like you know your role at the Guggenheim involved both of those did you see them as one in the same or how did you kind of approach that yeah I think that many uh people in that position some of my colleagues but you know people in many institutions um can feel uh kind of frustrated or bogged down by by some of that work and and you know the number of times that someone you know laments that they're having to dumb down content uh, for a certain audience which I you know fundamentally disagree with um and so I I like the way that you put it like thinking about it as a design problem and I don't know if I would have necessarily used that word but I I really I've feel that I, if, if I can't describe something in a plain and coherent way, then I don't understand it. (laughs) Yeah, Um, exactly. And and so I actually think that process of being able to break it down, you know, is so much of my own learning process too. And so that I think goes back to the teaching and I generally teach introductory studio, um, which is a choice. (laughs) And I think Mm. that it, I mean, there's so many, and I could talk about that um, forever because you know, it's about yeah, go for it process and thinking spatially. Um, but it's also, I think, has been a nice pair to to curatorial work because it really kind of keeps me keeps me grounded to to an introductory kind of explanation of the field. Um, yeah. 
and so I, yeah, I always really like that pairing. And I told you, uh, I'm, I'm teaching high school students right now, which right. I, I picked up really because I felt like I needed a mental release and just a different <laughs> you mm. know, pace. Um, so I picked it up kind of at the busiest time of the exhibition, but that's just the kind of person I am. <laughs> um, but it's been very wild to teach high school over the course of the past couple years, um, but especially the past several months. Um, and I think it's really made me reflect, you know, as the school that I'm teaching within, there have been a lot of faculty meetings about, you know, how do we, how do we really think about what anti-racist curriculum is? And so I feel that introductory architecture is just learning your own process and, and learning to fail and build off of that. But I definitely have been leaning on some early Cornell assignments that I did as a student at Cornell and I and I taught as a, when I was teaching at Cornell that were kind of really rooted in abstraction. I mean, I've riffed off of a cube assignment, which is, you know, the oldest Cornell assignment that exists. Um and this Wait, so what wait, 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 wait. what is the cube assignment? Oh. <laughs> you just um you assign people a model which is a cube and then what you're really doing is teaching people about how space is defined and so there's this kind of aha moment where people start thinking about spaces within the cube itself and hierarchy and how they relate as opposed to the material itself so when you talk about intersection you're not talking about a joint you're talking about intersection of space and it's very this kind of like iterative assignment brings people along that journey and then when they're designing you know in context they're they're just thinking about flow of space in a different way because they they started there um so yeah i had always been kind of starting with those assignments and feeling pretty good about them and especially within this high school context they really wanted the architecture studio to kind of like be within the art studio model and not and not feel too distinct from that um But this year, I've been reflecting a lot about what should someone who's just newly introduced to the field come away with, and how could I try to um, bring that into the curriculum? And so we've been talking, so we did a bus stop project, (laughs) Um, and it's about you know, really rooting the projects in the scale of a person. So that also inherently makes each student value their own experience and think Mm -hmm. about the way they move down the street and needs that they have. Um, But then we, you know, made sure that there were always scale figures in every single drawing or every photograph of a model so that not only are they thinking about human scale, but they're also thinking about who those people are. Um, Right. Talking about like, hostile architecture on the street. Mm. Um, So yeah, it was just a very, I think, different approach. But I think that the major point that I was trying to instill in the students was thinking about the responsibility of being someone that designs an intervention in the built environment, Um, that architecture is 
shelter, but architecture oppresses. Um, and so if they could just take just that away <laughs> from, you know, a high school class, I think that that can fundamentally change how they move through the world. So, so that's also what I was always trying to think about at the Guggenheim too. Like the Guggenheim for many people is perhaps their first introduction to architecture or they're coming to see that building. And so that's a huge responsibility. And like, what do you, what do you do with that? So a huge part of my agenda was trying to uh, nuance the, the way people would learn about the building and could they come away with anything that's more than Frank Lloyd Wright was a genius. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, And I think that architecture is just seen as this really niche thing and therefore tends to be discussed through a couple of very specific lenses, like only through history or only through kind of a formal description. And those two lenses in particular, I think really uh, work in a museum space. Those are the ways that it's kind of more easily compared to art, um, Mm -hmm. which I feel is problematic it's taking taking the work out of context so yeah i thought you know what an incredible thing actually as an architecture curator to work within a building like that and so how could Mm. i make so much of my job just about thinking about teaching people about the building and therefore architecture broadly so part of that was really um you know doubling down on talking about the collaborative construction process and, you know, the general contractor, just so people could have a sense of all of the the stakeholders and how big the project is and the field is. Obviously, it's not just this one work of one genius. Um, But also the spatial qualities of that space, I think that we don't really have enough of a vocabulary to talk about how people feel in spaces. And I don't know, I've been thinking about this a lot recently and I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do or think about it. When I was working on my undergrad thesis, I was super interested in like perception of space and how you could design for that. And my thesis advisor Mm. told me that you can't. (laughs) And I, I think about that all the time and it's completely true. Like how disingenuous for an architect to say, you know, and then there's a high ceiling with a skylight and so you feel hope or something. Right. Obviously right. no, like you just right. cannot begin to to plan for um or or understand the complexity that any person brings to a space. But I think that that then maybe we don't value enough perception of space and, and experience. So I don't know. This project that I worked on right before I left the museum um, is a sensory um, building audio guide. So I worked Mm. closely with uh, Karen Bergman, um, who's an access manager at the museum. um, And Mm. she works with the Mind's Eye program, which is this really incredible program working with blind and low sight audiences. And so, um, you know, when we all hit the, the remote and virtual world, they're presented this opportunity of how, you know, we're not doing the, the tours that we would normally do in person. So, so could we make an audio guide that would be, um, 
built for those audiences in particular. And it was such, such an interesting process to work on. And the idea of talking about a building and not talking about history at all, but also not using any visual reference, <laughs> like how do you, right. how do you just describe it? And, you know, it's sensory, you know, whatever you talk about sound and light, but, but it's also, uh, you know, what does it feel like when you're walking up a cantilever and you can feel the vibration, <laughs> you know, this like weightlessness. We just had these like really like deep and interesting conversations about what it feels like to walk through that space, but also that it's always different every day, yeah. <laughs> all yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, and I thought that just trying to capture that in the guide was a really amazing exercise. And I feel like there's opportunity to to work more in that space and just think about just every day, every person's spatial awareness more. Yeah. It, that's so interesting because that, that also connects exactly to what you were saying you were working with, with these high school students about like, like designing the the bus stop is, is kind of like rooting it in the, the single person, the actual kind of sensory experience and 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 this idea that um i'm i'm starting to make like a variety of connections from what you just said because i have so many questions about it but that that idea of what you want the the students to take away from is that architecture can shelter but it can also oppress and that for many of them that's this is their first introduction to architecture their first kind of uh kind of close relationship to it and that that is the same uh job as a curator who many people who are seeing a show in the Guggenheim uh, or any museum maybe have very little references in talking about architecture or thinking about architecture. And so part of your job in curating an architecture exhibition or working on an architecture exhibition is that educational component. And what is the, like the one high level thing that they can take away from? And I, I totally see that connection and I agree with that. But the other thing you said that I think is is the challenge is that in an exhibition, often the work is removed from its context. You don't actually have that context. And so you're talking about kind of actually thinking about the Guggenheim building as a context, which I think is kind of super interesting. Do you have thoughts on like how to do that in a, how, how to, how to show or exhibit or talk about architecture or even design in general um, in in inside of a context when often that context is removed. I, you know what I mean? Like how, how do you actually like exhibit architecture when context and that, that kind of sensory relationship to a building or, or to a piece of architecture is so important? Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so tough. And I, I think that architecture curatorial is ultimately still, uh, you know, a field that's being developed all of the time. And people are kind of thinking about different, different avenues and ways to do it. But I'm glad you were saying, you know, I feel like I've been really focused a lot on the, the big takeaway for, for the new audience, because especially within the projects that I worked on and the kind of like broader curatorial team, you know, with any exhibition, there's, 
there's there's no such thing as a single audience and right. we talk about broad audience but obviously there there are so so many and i think that there is a lot of attention especially at least within the teams that i was working on on the the informed audience um because there's you know really big expectations that come from those those people and so i don't know in any situation i try to kind of really consider what my agency is and how I can make impact and value. And so I, at least within the last several years at the museum, really tried to, to double down on, on ensuring that there is a large scale takeaway that felt very valuable. Um, and so, you know, within the context of countryside, the future, I was thinking, <laughs> you know, people don't even know what an architect is. And just the, the idea right. that you could know that architects have a research practice and that, you know, thinking about context is important and that you can't just be designing without also doing that work. I feel like there are those like bigger, bigger narratives and like just taking that is is a way to, you can, you know, like build a whole conversation around it that, you know, becomes more adjacent to content, but use the content as a kind of jumping off point. So I found a lot right. of opportunities for that. And I have always been really fixated on, on figuring those out because I think that ultimately when I, part of my job was training uh, the gallery guides who are the people kind of standing. Oh, interesting. Um, and, you know, that show has a ton of content, which you would expect. Um, and there was some of my colleagues who were gallery guides were like, I can't become an expert on all of this. And I was just like, yeah. oh, that's, of course not. And, you know, honestly, no one is. Um, yeah. I certainly am not. Um, and so then instead of, you know, I mean, obviously you engage with the visitor with whatever you know, you know, you meet them where they are and you see what they want to know, but, but how nice to think about instead of trying to get into the weeds of a single piece of content that, you know, is already kind of out of context to some kind of degree, instead mm -hmm. think about that as this like bigger, bigger jumping off point, um, whether it's just, you know, this is an architect who's asking fundamental questions and that's a way that he's moving his, you know, process forward you could do that too <laughs> like just right. just that right. I think is really um exciting and where I, I I found myself most I I think you know that comes back to that that kind of critique that you had of people who who sometimes think that you know when you're working with different stakeholders you're dumbing it down or something like that and I agree with you that that, that I think that's the wrong way to look at it but what I'm hearing you say is that you can kind of create these layers almost, you know, there's this kind of like high level, you know, big idea, but then there are all these kind of sub pieces that, um, that then one can also engage with. And I think that, that, that works as a curator in a museum. And that also works as a teacher teaching high school students, their first, you know, architecture design class. What I'm also interested in is how you get people into that conversation who maybe don't even know that that conversation is happening. Yeah. Um, because if you think about the high level idea that architecture can shelter and it can also oppress, that's something that, 
I don't mean this to sound, I hope this doesn't come across as like egotistical. That's something that I want like everybody to know, <laughs> you know, like, like, like that's like the, all humans should, should, should know that. I think that is such an important idea. How do you, how do you think about welcoming in people who have no idea that this is even happening? Yeah, I'm thinking about this so much right now and just thinking about what the, what are the right platforms? Um, and ultimately, it's about storytelling. Um, and I think that, so, I mean, actually, just to even connect to your last question again, when you were saying, you know, how are you, how do you exhibit architecture out of context? Mm -hmm. um, I think that the out of context is more than just the fact that you're not physically in the building. It's also you are talking about a building probably through the lens of just an architect or just a critic. Oh, right. Um, and I think that if you're trying to meet everyone where they are, you know, everyone is moving through the built environment every single day. Um, mm -hmm. And if we more and more tried to... Um, you know, elevate the stories of other stakeholders, everyone from, you know, everyone within the process of a building, but just like how buildings live. Um, I think that that would make people more engaged, more excited and see that they have agency in the process. I think we can only like talk about, you know, futures we're building if, if we're kind right. of bringing everyone along. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was part of like getting at with the sensory guide, I thought, because it was just, you know, reflecting on some of these very, very specific um, spatial experiences, but then maybe others are kind of, you know, recognizing that in their own spaces or, or, or starting to look around them. I mean, I think that when people start to look around them and recognize oh, I take so much for granted in the built environment. It's static. It's been there forever. And you're like, oh, people made these choices. Um, I think that that's a real, a real eye-opener. Um, and I, I think so much of what Curbed does, um, platform really gets into this work where you just start to, to really like know your city more and also find these touch points where maybe you can have agency, but I think you could step back even further and just like, I don't know, think about the way you move through space on any given day. Um, like not within yeah. specific, specific confines. And I don't know. I think that actually um, it's so interesting that suddenly everyday people have a concept of what six feet feels like. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I've been just super reflecting on this. Actually, I made an assignment around this too, where we talked about um, a kind of different infrastructure that was, um, you know, instructing people to socially distance. And many times it's, it's a bunch of circles on the ground, you know, which mm -hmm. is really only helpful when you're waiting in line. <laughs> it basically right. does nothing for you. It helps when you are standing exactly on a circle. Um, and so I had my students design what I called, which now we're just like <laughs> getting into jargon, but 14 year olds were talking about their didactic uh, <laughs> spatial awareness installations. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but the, the idea was how could you, um, 
design an installation that then would either instill a habit or um, mm. like help help you just have a sense of these dimensions elsewhere. So so students or a really good one actually was one of my students very excited told me that um, a beach towel is six feet long. <laughs> It's like mm. brilliant, you know, just like where do these dimensions exist in our world? But then others would kind of, you know, measure out the distance between sidewalk expansion joints or, you know, standard widths of doors. And just if you start kind of like recognizing dimensions all around you, that empowers you as you move through space during this scary time where maybe you're you're trying to distance, but you you don't have that that spatial awareness that so you can't. I mean, it's it, it's such a great way to think about it. Too, in that it's it's empowering, you know, thinking about giving people agency that that these buildings, these spaces were decisions made by somebody else, which means that then new decisions can be made, you know, yeah. that you can have a say in your space, I think is actually a, a really empowering message and an empowering way to kind of um, you know, kind of think about these things. I have I have two more questions um, that that are the two questions that I use to end many of these conversations. You, uh, we're we're recording this at the end of of twenty twenty. This will be out in twenty twenty one. You left the Guggenheim earlier uh, this year or last year. By the time people listen to this, um, and you've talked a bit about things that you are thinking about. What's next for you, or where do you see um, you see this work going next. I mean, you have this design background, you have this curatorial background, you have this teaching background. Um, where's all this fit together? What's next for you? Yeah, I mean, that's the <laughs> <laughs> the big question, but but I think part of it is what you just touched on. I mean, I think that I could easily I get excited working in all of those realms and it's, it's interesting trying to think through um, where there's a platform where you can kind of put all of those, yeah. those skills to work. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we've touched on, on different types of storytelling throughout, throughout this conversation. And I, I am really interested in, in platforms where I can somehow mm -hmm. elevate stories of people's experience with the built environment that would then, you know, empower others. And I think that there are different, different spaces for that. I'm kind of working through a few um, more personal projects. Um, mm. And, but also looking, you know, for the right fit. And who knows, I think that there's, there's so much potential, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm mostly, this is such a, like a nice time to, to reflect and think about things that really worked. And I, part of my job was giving building tours. Um, and it's mm. funny because that in many different moments was explained to me as like, Oh, you know, sorry, you still have to do this or you can just train the guides. And I loved giving tours. I felt like that was, that yeah. was where you really craft them. That's where you, you kind of recognize the moments that you're that something's clicking with people is so, so amazing. And so I'm really thinking about that a lot, not, you know, trying to become a tour guide, but just like how, how can that manifest in, in other ways? I was talking to somebody the other day who said, you know, after 2020, all 
Like you can do whatever you want. Like any, you know, all the old ways of doing things, all the traditions, all the normal pathways, um, you know, can be shaken up. And I think that's why I was interested in talking to you now in this kind of moment is because you have these different uh, kind of backgrounds and you've kind of moved between them all. But also there's like all these new different ways you can do it. Like you can be a curator, not at a museum, or you could be a teacher, not teaching at like an art school. And you're kind of doing that, which I think is really, um, really interesting. Um, my last question, I'm just curious what you're reading right now. Yeah, I just, I just finished a book and I'm starting another one. So I'll... <laughs> Perfect. No. Another, another in-between space. I, <laughs> um, I just finished... Sarah Hendren's book, What Can a Body mm-hmm. Do? Um, I have truly recommended it to everyone I know. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember the last time I stopped to take notes so many times when I was just reading a book for myself. Nice. Um, yeah. It's a, just, she, I had her I had her on the show. She's a friend of mine. That's such a great book. Yeah. So she yeah, she did the same. We overlapped one year. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And I I, I love that book for so many reasons, but I think that she has um, a way of describing things that that people at varying like levels of understanding would would gain from. And so I, yeah, was just really I felt like I was taking notes on on the tone yeah. piece of language as well as the the concept she was bringing bringing in. So I love that. Um, and I just started. Oliver Sacks's uh, Oaxaca Journal. Um, mm. You know, I feel like we're all in this, or at least many people in my circles are just feeling extreme wanderlust right now. Um, mm-hmm. And I love, I mean, he's such a great storyteller too. And I just was like, oof, I want to be transported. <laughs> yeah. The book, so. Yeah. Ashley, this was such a fun conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for being on the podcast. I super enjoyed it too. This episode was recorded on December 17th, 2020. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.